Section 10 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Gould. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 2. In Opposition to a New Agrarian Law, Part 1. By Cicero. In Opposition to a New Agrarian Law. Footnote. Delivered to the people in the Roman Forum, Cicero's second oration on the same subject, the first having been delivered in the Senate. Translated by Charles Duke Yong. Abridged. In footnote. 61 B.C. After a very long interval, almost beyond the memory of our times, you have for the first time made me, a new man, consul, and you have opened that rank which the nobles have held strengthened by guards and fenced round in every possible manner, in my instance first, and have resolved that it should in future be open to virtue. Nor have you only made me consul, though that is of itself a most honourable thing, but you have made me so in such a way as very few nobles in this city have ever been made consuls before in, and no new man whatever before me. For in truth, if you please to recollect, you will find that those new men who have at any time been made consuls without a repulse, have been elected after long toil, and on some critical emergency, having stood for it many years after they had been praetors, and a good deal later than they might have done according to the laws regulating the age of candidates for the office, but that those who stood for it in their regular year were not elected without a repulse that I am the only one of all the new men whom we can remember who has stood for the consulship the first moment that by law I could, who has been elected consul the first time that I have stood, so that this honour which you have conferred on me, having been sought by me at the proper time, appears not to have been filched by me on the occasion of some unpopular candidate offering himself, not to have been gained by long perseverance in asking for it, but to have been fairly earned by my worth and dignity. This also is a most honourable thing for me, Romans, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, that I am the first new man for many years on whom you have conferred this honour, that you have conferred it on my first application in my proper year. But yet nothing can be more splendid or more honourable for me than this circumstance, that at the comedia at which I was elected you delivered not your ballot, the vindication of your silent liberty, but your eager voices as the witnesses of your good will toward and zeal for me. And so it was not the last tribe of the votes, but the very first moment of your meeting. It was not the single voices of the criers, but the whole Roman people with one voice that declared me consul. I think this eminent and unprecedented kindness of yours, Romans, of great weight as a reward for my courage, and is a source of joy to me, but still more calculated to impress me with care and anxiety. For Romans, many and grave thoughts occupy my mind, which allow me but little rest day or night. First there is anxiety about discharging the duties of the consulship, which is a difficult and important business to all men, and especially to me above all other men, for if I err, I shall obtain no pardon. If I do well, I shall get but little praise, and that too extorted from unwilling people. If I am in doubt, I have no faithful counsellors to whom I can apply. If I am in difficulty, I have no sure assistance from the nobles on which I can depend. For I will speak the truth, Romans. I cannot find fault with the general principle of an agrarian law. 
for it occurs to my mind that two most illustrious men, two most able men, two most thoroughly attached to the Roman people, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, established the people on public domains which had previously been occupied by private individuals. Nor am I a consul of such opinions as to think it wrong, as most men do, to praise the Gracchi, by whose counsels and wisdom and laws I see that many parts of the Republic have been greatly strengthened. Therefore, when at the very beginning, I, being the consul-elect, was informed that the tribunes-elect of the people were drawing up an agrarian law, I wished to ascertain what their plans were. In truth, I thought that since we were both to act as magistrates in the same year, it was right that there should be some union between us, for the purpose of governing the Republic wisely and successfully. When I wished to join them familiarly in conversation, I was shut out. Their projects were concealed from me. And when I assured them that, if the law appeared to me to be advantageous to the Roman people, I would assist them in it and promote it, still they rejected this liberality of mine with scorn, and said that I could not possibly be induced to approve of any liberal measures. I do assert to you, Romans, that by this beautiful agrarian law, by this law calculated solely for the good of the people, nothing whatever is given to you. Everything is sacrificed to a few particular men. That lands are displayed before the eyes of the Roman people, liberty is taken away from them, that the fortunes of some private individuals are increased, the public wealth is exhausted, and lastly, which is the most scandalous thing of all, that by means of a tribune of the people, whom our ancestors designed to be the protector and guardian of liberty, kings are being established in the city. And when I have shown to you all the grounds for this statement, if they appear to you to be erroneous, I will yield to your authority. I will abandon my own opinion. But if you become aware that plots are laid against your liberty under a pretense of liberality, then do not hesitate, now that you have a consul to assist you, to defend that liberty which was earned by the sweat and blood of your ancestors, and handed down to you without any trouble on your part. The first clause in this agrarian law is one by which, as they think, you are a little proved to see with what feelings you can bear a diminution of your liberty. For it orders the tribune of the people who has passed this law to create ten decemvirs by the votes of seventeen tribes, so that whomsoever a majority consisting of nine tribes elects shall be a decemvir. On this I ask, on what account the framer of this law has commenced his law and his measures in such a manner as to deprive the Roman people of its right of voting? As often as agrarian laws have been passed, commissioners and triumvirs and quinquevirs and decemvirs have been appointed. I ask this tribune of the people who is so attached to the people whether they were ever created except by the whole thirty-five tribes. In truth, as it is proper for every power, and every command, and every charge which is committed to any one to proceed from the entire Roman people, so especially ought these to do so, which are established for any use and advantage of the Roman people, as that is a case in which they all together choose the man, who they think will most study the advantage of the Roman people, and in which also each individual among them by his own zeal and his own vote, assists to make a road by which he may obtain some individual benefit for himself. 
This is the tribune to whom it has occurred above all others to deprive the Roman people of their suffrages, and to invite a few tribes, not by any fixed condition of law, but by the kindness of lots drawn, and by chance, to usurp the liberties belonging to all. Who passed the law? Rullus. Footnote. Publius Servilius Rullus, a tribune of the people. End footnote. Who prevented the greater portion of the people from having a vote? Rullus. Who presided over the comitia? Who summoned to the election whatever tribes he pleased, having drawn the lots for them without any witness being present to see fair play? Who appointed whatever decemvirs he chose? This same Rullus. Whom did he appoint chief of the decemvirs? Rullus. I hardly believe that he could induce his own slaves to approve of this, much less you who are the masters of all nations. Therefore the most excellent laws will be repealed by this law without the least suspicion of the fact. He will seek for a commission of himself by virtue of his own law. He will hold comitia, though the greater portion of the people is stripped of their votes. He will appoint whomsoever he pleases and himself among them, and forsooth he will not reject his own colleagues, the backers of this agrarian law, by whom the first place in the unpopularity which may possibly arise from drawing the law, and from having his name at the head of it, has indeed been conceded to him. But the profit from the whole business, they who in the hope of it are placed in this position, reserve to themselves in equal shares with him. But now take notice of the diligence of the man, if indeed you think that Rullus contrived this, or that it is a thing which could possibly have occurred to Rullus. Those men who first projected these measures saw that, if you had the power of making your selection out of the whole people, whatever the matter might be in which good faith, integrity, virtue, and authority were required, you would beyond all question entrust it to Gnaeus Pompeius as the chief manager. Footnote. Pompey the Great, in the year of this oration, had just ended the war with Mithridates, had annexed Syria and Palestine to Rome, and had a triumph. In the following year he became a triumvir with Caesar and Crassus. In footnote. In truth, after you had chosen one man out of all the citizens, and appointed him to conduct all your wars against all nations by land and sea, they saw plainly that it was most natural that, when you were appointing decemvirs, whether it was to be looked on as committing a trust to, or conferring an honor on a man, you would commit the business to him, and most reasonable that he should have this compliment paid him. Therefore an exception is made by this law, mentioning not youth, nor any legal impediment, nor any command or magistracy, which might be encumbered with obstacles arising either from the business with which it was already loaded, or from the laws. There is not even an exception made in the case of any convicted person to prevent his being made a decemvir. Gnaeus Pompeius is accepted and disabled from being elected, a colleague of Publius Rullus, for I say nothing of the rest. For he has worded the law so that only those who are present can stand for the office, a clause which was never yet found in any other law, not even in the laws concerning those magistrates who were periodically elected. But this clause was inserted in order that if the law passed, you might not be able to give him a colleague who would be a guardian over him, and a check upon his covetousness. Here, since I see that you are moved by the dignity of the man, and by the insult put upon him by this law, 
I will return to the assertion that I made at the beginning, that a kingly power is being erected, and your liberties entirely taken away by this law. Did you think otherwise, that when a few men had cast the eyes of covetousness on all your possessions, they would not, in the very first place, take care that Gnaeus Pompeius should be removed from all power of protecting your liberty, from all power to promote, from all commission to watch over, and from all means of protecting your interests? They saw, and they see still, that if through your own imprudence and my negligence you adopt this law, without understanding its effect, you would afterward, when you were creating decemvirs, think it expedient to oppose Gnaeus Pompeius as your defense against all defects and wickednesses in the law. And is this a slight argument to you, that these are men by whom dominion and power over everything is sought, when you see that he, whom they see, will surely be the protector of your liberty, is the only one to whom that dignity is denied? Besides all this, he gives the decemvirs authority praetorian in name but kingly in reality. He describes their power as a power for five years, but he makes it perpetual, for he strengthens it with such bulwarks and defenses that it will be quite impossible to deprive them of it against their own consent. Then he adorns them with apparitors, and secretaries, and clerks, and criers, and architects, besides that with mules, and tents, and centuries, and all sorts of furniture, he draws money for their expenses from the treasury. He supplies them with more money from the allies. He appoints them two hundred surveyors from the equestrian body every year as their personal attendants, and also as ministers and satellites of their power. You have now, O Romans, the form and very appearance of tyrants. You see all the ensigns of power, but not yet the power itself. For perhaps someone may say, well, what harm do all those men, secretary, lictor, crier, and chicken-feeder do me? I will tell you. These things are of such a nature that the man who has them without their being conferred by your vote must seem either a monarch with intolerable power, or if he assumes them as a private individual, a madman. Just see what great authority they are invested with, and you will say that it is not the insanity of private individuals, but the immoderate arrogance of kings. First of all, they are entrusted with boundless power of acquiring enormous sums of money out of your revenues, not by farming them, but by alienating them. In the next place, they are allowed to pursue an inquiry into the conduct of every country and of every nation without any bench of judges to punish without any right of appeal being allowed, and to condemn without there being any means of procuring a reversal of their sentence. They will be able for five years to sit in judgment on the consuls, or even on the tribunes of the people themselves, but all that time no one will be able to sit in judgment on them. They will be allowed to fill magisterial offices, but they will not be allowed to be prosecuted. They will have power to purchase lands from whomsoever they choose, whatever they choose, and at whatever price they choose. They are allowed to establish new colonies, to recruit old ones, to fill all Italy with their colonists. They have absolute authority for visiting every province, for depriving free people of their lands, for giving or taking away kingdoms, whenever they please. They may be at Rome when it is convenient to them, but they have a right also to wander about wherever they like with supreme command, and with a power of sitting in judgment on everything. They are allowed to put an end to all criminal trials. 
to remove from the tribunals whoever they think fit, to decide by themselves on the most important matters, to delegate their power to a questor, to send about surveyors, and to ratify whatever the surveyor has reported to that single decemvir by whom he has been sent. It is a defect in my language, Romans, when I call this power a kingly power, for in truth it is something much more considerable. For there never was any kingly power that, if it was not defined by some express law, was not at least understood to be subject to certain limitations. But this power is absolutely unbounded. It is one within which all kingly powers, and your own imperial authority, which is of such wide extent, and all other powers, whether freely exercised by your permission, or existing only by your tacit countenance, are, by express permission of the law, comprehended. End of section 10. Recording by Philip Gould.